Amen. This time, please turn with me in your Bibles. We are turning to 2 Kings chapter 1. As we continue towards the end of Elijah's ministry. We will read the entire chapter. This is God's word. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell to the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go inquire of Baal-zabub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messenger of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baal-zabub, the god of Ekron? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. The messengers returned to the king and he said to them, why have you returned? And they said to him, there came a man to meet us and said to us, go back to the king who sent you and say to him. Thus says the Lord. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baal-zebub, the God of Ephraim? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. Then the king sent to him a captain of 50 men with his 50. He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of 50, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Again, the king sent to him another captain of 50 men with his strength. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Again, the king sent the captain of a third fifty with his fifty. And the third captain of fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him, O man of God, please let my life and the life of these fifty servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of fifty men with their fifties. Now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have sent messengers to inquire of Baal's above, the God of Ekron, is it because there is no God in Israel to inquire this word? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of 
Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? This is God's word. Well, this opening introduction is taken from a historical piece uh, from CNN on the Titanic. I've woven a few comments in there. But on April 11th, I believe 1912, the 882-foot-long Titanic steamed from Queenstown, Ireland, towards New York. The ship was a new breed of ocean liners, absolutely stunning in its size, luxury, and safety features. It was, in the minds of all, practically unsinkable. The phrase, originally practically unsinkable, was from an engineering journal, but after a while it didn't matter. It got around, it was said to be practically unsinkable. On top of it, someone claims to have heard the ship's captain, Edward John Smith, say, even God himself could not sink this ship. Whether that's true or not, that attitude was around. And so the Titanic left port carrying more than 2,200 passengers and crew, more than 130 pounds, 130,000 pounds of meat and fish, 1,750 pounds of ice cream, 400 asparagus tongs, and only 20 of the 32 lifeboats designed to be on board. The ship steamed out as it entered colder waters. It ignored more than 30 different iceberg warnings. At 11.40 p.m., April 14th, the Titanic hit an iceberg and stalled. At first, passengers joked that they had to stop for a fresh coat of paint to be applied where the iceberg scraped the hull. 2.20 a.m., it sank. The sinking of the Titanic and its tragic loss of life is a story of overconfidence and arrogance. Over 2,200 people started the voyage, only 710 survived. Tonight, God's Word presents you with another tragic story of overconfidence and arrogance. King Ahaziah, he's Ahab's son, his descendant, has followed him after his father died, is on his deathbed. And instead of seeking the God who could heal him, he turns to idols. And what we see here is, is, is that, once again, from the Bible's point of view, idolatry is insanity. So kids, what's an idol? Someone said, what is an idol? How would you respond? And of course you could talk about the idols back then where, where people bowed down and sacrificed and worshipped them and maybe gave them gifts of food and gold. And, and that's certainly one of them. But, but idols come in lots of shapes and sizes, right? It's, it's what's absolutely most important to you. It's, it's what you love. It's what makes you um, who you are, what gives you a sense of worth. It's, it's who you go to right away when you need help. It's the thing that consumes your resources, that demands your response. It's the most important thing in your life. It's what has power over you. That's your idol. And today we'll see, uh, very common from Scripture, that idolatry is insanity. And the question I also want you to have in the back of your mind is, who do you turn to when you are in trouble? So why is idolatry insanity from this passage? Why is it crazy? Well, first of all, because it doesn't work. Because it's useless. 
So, so in this story here, King Ahaziah, who, by the way, only reigns for two years or so after his father Ahab, uh, re- remember his father Ahab repents and God does not bring the judgment he promised, but then he ignores God's, uh, basically goes off and starts a war that, that um, he shows his stubbornness and he dies as a consequence of that. And so Ahaziah comes and very shortly into his reign, two years in, he falls. It's very serious. He realizes he might be on his deathbed. He may not recover. And so he seeks divine assistance in the form of Baalzebub um, in Ekron. It could be Baalzebul, which I believe is the Lord of the Storm, or Baalzebub, the Lord of the Fly. It might be corrupted. It might actually be the Hebrew's way of mocking them. But it's, it's the God, the Baal, the Lord of Ekron. Well, there's a couple problems with this. Problem number one, Ekron is a Philistine city. Probably, you know, if, you, if you've read through First uh, and Second Samuel, you, you, might, you might sound familiar. And it has a bad track record already. Do you remember the story of the Ark of the Covenant when it's captured in First Samuel? First uh, Samuel 4 and 5, the, the Israelites are going out to battle. And they say, hey, it would be really good if we had the Ark of the Covenant. And Eli, the priest at that time, had two sons who were wicked, Hophni and Phinehas. And they, they brought it out without the Lord saying and telling them to do that. And so they have this, this boost of morale. The, the Philistines are scared straight, but then they, they say, hey, you know, we're going we're gonna to go down fighting. And because they brought the Ark out, Israel, without God telling, they lose. He's not with them. And not only do they lose, but the ark is captured, which is the absolute worst tragedy ever. Old Eli, who was blind and, and sitting back at the tabernacle waiting for the battle report, when he hears that, he, he falls over and he, he, he dies, breaks his neck. Right? The, the ark of the captured. And the, now this means, right, that the ark of the covenant is captured, that, that Yahweh, the Lord of Israel, is defeated by Baal, the, the Lord of Philistines, right? Well, well not quite. Right, the Lord left Israel because of disobedience, but the Philistines, they have this ark, and they take it back as spoil, and, and they, they first go to Ashdod, and, and Ashdod's the temple of, of Dagon, it's the fish god, if you remember, they, they put it in there, and after a couple iterations at night, eventually, you know, Dagon's falling face forward, his head's off, his hands are off, and they say, okay, this is not going so well, let's send it to a, a, a different town, and there's also tumors breaking out in the city, so the ark goes to Gath. And it's no sooner that the ark arrives in Gath that tumors start breaking out in the city and the people start to stampede. They're going crazy. Get it out of here. They say, well, let's, you know, let's send it to Ekron. Here we go. Let's send it to Ekron. The people of Ekron paraphrase saying, are you trying to kill us? And at which point they decide we need to send this back uh, to Israel. Right. So what you see here is that the God of Ekron, this is centuries before, but has no power over the Lord of the Ark of the Covenant. So the first problem for Ahaziah is that he's sending for help and guidance to a side that has shown to be inferior, kind of the losing side of this battle. It would almost be like building a new luxury liner and calling it Titanic II. Who who wants to come aboard with me on the main voyage of the Titanic II? Anybody? Any takers? Well, you know, if first you don't succeed, let's do it again. The first problem. The second problem, and worse, is that Ahaziah ignores the true God who's currently active in showing himself in Israel. And if, if you read this passage, you 
becomes pretty obvious three times the question comes up is there no God in Israel? Ahaziah, why are you going to a false God when there's a true God here? And, and this phrase seems to echo the showdown at Mount Carmel. If you turn back to 1 Kings 18, as Elijah is praying after the, the prophets of Baal have worn themselves ragged, chapter 18, verse 36, at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your word. And it seems like this passage is purposely recalling what God did when he answered by fire, and the people shouted, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God, this is God. And Ahaziah certainly knew about that. In fact, it's possible he was there as a younger man. Uh, the, the text doesn't say it, but it wouldn't. It would only talk about Ahab. That's the way the Hebrew text works. It just talks about the person in charge. Um, whether he's there or not, he certainly knew about this, that God had answered, that the Lord was in charge. So where should Ahaziah send his messengers to? Well, ideally, to the Ark of, covenant, of the Covenant in Jerusalem. Now, that's politically inconvenient because there's now a north and south kingdom, and that's why way back King Jeroboam started... Uh, another uh, worship site in Bethel and Dan started leading the people astray. But at the least, he should have gone to Elijah and not to this Baal But in his stubbornness, he refuses to change but continues in the ways of his parents. And shows you, this is, this is useless. This is irrational. One commentator said, you know, we will seek anything else but the Lord in our sinful state, even on our deathbed, time is running out, and, and he's willfully ignoring the living God who could heal him. And this is, this is true of all idolatry. Right? When, when you make something, when I make something else, the, the meaning and purpose of my life, and, and put that weight on it, it will fail you, no matter what it is. Any good thing. And if we live as there is no God, then we have to make a false God functionally to act in his place, whether we realize it or not. And there's two problems with that. Of course, the first one is, no matter how good things are today, and there's, there's a lot of wisdom, people are learning how to live longer, to live more effectively, uh, skill levels are rising, people are just learning different techniques and ways to play, from playing the piano to playing chess to engineering. There's so many ways that we are improving our skill levels and that is wonderful, and it's pursuing the image of God, but it doesn't help us with our main problem, is that we are mortal and that we will die. Death is a reality check. And what are we going to do without God as we make this world better? Better, right? As last century has shown, we make it better with world wars and things like that as well. Well, we can prolong our death. We can deny our death. But wisdom without God... Pursuit to itself is simply idolatry, which will be like Ahaziah grasping for Baal on our deathbed. Well, the second problem is that if you give your allegiance to someone or something else other than your rightful creator, that will bring judgment. And that's the second problem with idolatry. Not only is it useless, but it ends in judgment. And in this passage, you see multiple graphic images of judgment. There's two companies of the king's men and their captains are burnt to a crisp and then 
Ahaziah receives that word three times in the passage that he is not going to recover, but that he will die because he sought Baal and not the Lord. Now, I think probably, I don't know about you, but when I read this passage, the thing that sticks out to me first is are, are the three captains and, and men of 50. And why, what, what is up with the fire coming down and incinerating some of these, all these men? Is, aren't they innocent? This is, this is kind of strange. It seems a little petty. It's, there's some commentators who actually would say, you know, this is really not one of Elijah's best moments. You know, he, was, he had an off day. So what's happening here? What's going on? We have to realize what the soldiers represent. The soldiers are really a sign of the king's hostility, continued hostility to the Lord. It is strange that when he sends a messenger to Baal, he's okay with just getting a word back. But instead he gets a word from the messenger of God, and when he comes back he says, Oh, that's Elijah. Bring him here. I want to talk to him. So he's already uh, showing a bit more hostile posture. He doesn't demand that. Baal comes to him the message, but Elijah must. And in fact, you can gather from verse 15, once the third captain pleads for mercy, for life, and, and, and the angel of the Lord says to Elijah, go down with him, do not be afraid of him. So you could, you could kind of read between the lines that there was probably some hostile intent here. That, that he had good human reason to be wary or afraid uh, without God of the first two groups of men. They, they, they wasn't exactly an honor guard coming, right? Not only that, but the soldiers represented the king and his authority. And you see this as the, the, the leaders come out. They, they say right away, man of God, the king says, you know, hear ye, hear ye, the king says, come down. Get off of that high place. Come down and talk with me. As one commentator said, just as, just as Ahaziah's messengers come and enjoy power and respect to their king, because they are representing the king, Elijah is representing the Lord. And so what you really have here is, is a clash of the Lord's messengers against the king's messengers. There's once again a, a showdown here. And although you could say that the, the 50 men in each of the companies may have been innocent. They could have been a, uh, an example of what happens when someone else sins and you're affected by the sins. You, you kind of think that the, the captains show some arrogance of their own. Uh, they're at least conveying the king's message. But they say, you know, man of God, come down. This, this fairly arrogant way of addressing the king says. And in fact, the second one uh, kind of doubles down. Come down quickly. There's, there is this antagonistic attitude. And so when they say, man of God, uh, Elijah responds, am I a man of God? Almost maybe saying, perhaps you, you really don't know what you mean when you say that, or you wouldn't be addressing me in that way. If I'm truly the representative of the living Lord, you, you wouldn't be ordering me around with you know, just a group of soldiers. And so he says, if... I am a man of God. Let fire come down and consume you and your fifth. So what's going on? A effectively throwing down a challenge to God's pronouncement. Elijah pronounced judgment. The messenger comes back. He doesn't like it, so he's going to come and talk to him, probably to alter it, maybe to hurt or kill him. 
Instead of accepting or repenting of this judgment, the king on his deathbed sends out soldiers to change the situation. If you think about this from a spiritual point of view, that's a pretty futile human power grab, right? It's not going to be any more effective than than a modern attempt to alter what God says is so. And so when the soldiers approach Elijah with that arrogance, Elijah calls down fire. And it's not Elijah who sends the fire. It's the Lord. It's the Lord who approves his request. And he does it because he's been dishonored by idolatry. Because he's been challenged by his authority. And this is a double slap in the face to Ahaziah. Not only, of course, is it uh, destroying his troops, but Baal, again, is supposed to be the god of fire. And here, once again, is the Lord answering in a way that shows that he is the true god, not Baal. Do you see the the pigheadedness of idolatry here? Okay. He tries the first time. The king loses 50 men in the ashes. What would you do if you just lost 50 men? Oh, I'll send another 50 out. That'll solve it, right? The next 50 come out? Ashes. Obvious answer? Well, certainly another 50. That'll take care of the problem, right? Now we'll talk about that that third group in a little bit. But you see, it's just, again, the insanity of idolatry. Kids, have you ever done this where, you know, uh, you, you, you did something and it didn't work once, and so you try it again and you try it again until you realize this, this just isn't going to work. And in Ahaziah's case, you see this is definitely not just a, a one-off, you know, flailing for help. Uh, okay, I, I'm just going to try to grab for this bail. No, if you, if you read about his... His very short description of his reign at the very end of Kings, it says, the very last verse, he served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father has done. So this is Ahaziah's consistent lifestyle as he's fleeing from the Lord. So what do we learn about God in this story as, as he confronts this dying king? Well, God is zealous for his name. He cannot let it go unchallenged. He, he will devour his enemies. It's, it's not exactly something you hear on the uh, you know, top 100 uh, inspirational songs today, even Christian, right? That, that God is, a, is, a, is a, a God who will devour his enemies, who, who is a judging God. Of course, he's a God of love. It's absolutely true. It's overflowing with love. But, but this passage shows that, that a God who is truly loving and zealous for his name cannot hold back judgment. Anger and wrath are a response to sin and those who rebel against his rule. And that's not contradictory with the God of love. It's actually consistent. He would not be goodness and love of himself if he allowed this this puny, arrogant king to flaunt his authority and rule. And in society, it's it's common to say, well, God, just forgive everyone, right? And just just let it go. And, And... that doesn't understand. It's not being gripped by his glory, that he cannot give his glory to another. But actually, it sounds very nice. Can't, can't just God be loving and just smooth everything out? That is actually as arrogant as Ahaziah. Ordering Elijah off that hill. I don't like that way you're, 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 you're acting. Come down. The proper thing to do is not to complain about God and his judgment, but to humbly recognize that Against any evil or rebellion, our our pure and holy, loving God must 
carry out judgment. And of course, that's not an Old Testament only type of response, right? But who is the Elijah of the New Testament? Who's, you know, who's, who's called the Elijah of the New Testament? They 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 talk about him. The, the, he dresses just like him. In some ways, he talks just like him, right? It's John the Baptist, and and he calls people to repentance. He bridges the the two the gap of the two testaments before Jesus comes and. And in his sermon in Matthew, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And we say, okay, hey, that's like Acts and Pentecost, and that's true. But then the next verse, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That's a, that's a judgment where either he will bring people to himself or, or there will be eternal punishment. That's, that's what the New Testament says. In Hebrews, it talks about how we should approach God. Hebrews 12, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. The problem with idolatry is it must lead to judgment. I'll just ask you, are there ways that you find yourself chafing under God's rule? He's he's put something in your life, he's brought something about, and you don't like it. You you, you hear the messenger, it comes back, and you say, can I I get a different take? Can can, can we move this a little bit? Or or maybe you've gone, at least internally, to full-blown opposition. And you're going to send your soldiers out and say, man of God, come down, let's talk about this, let's change this. You know, I was just thinking about this past week and was feeling a little chastened because I felt, I realized that I was just telling the Lord, you know, I've just about had enough of all of COVID and complications. I, I really feel entitled that we should just be done. You know, Lord, I, I just like to be done now. And I realized, okay, that's, that's a reasonable sentiment, but who am I to tell God when things end? And we need to be sometimes chasing that. There are ways that we, like Ahaziah, maybe not as overtly, maybe not as brashly, but can, can once you argue with God in a way that challenges his authority, and let his life be, remind you that, of God's his power and his justice and his judgment. Right? God demonstrates his power and reality by sending down the fire, and then... Elijah goes and tells once again the third time, first time Ahaziah hears from him, his fate. Nothing happens. Commentator says this, he says, aside, looking at this whole chapter, aside from the brief notice about Moab's rebellion, this narrative is the only incident reported for the the reign. Curiously, the writer recounts not how Ahaziah ruled, but how he died as someone who would not submit to God's authority and received his justice. Our God is a consuming fire. Believers in Jesus, idolatry still brings discipline and correction for our own good. It can be uncomfortable. Let us respect that. And if you reject God, then you're heaping up judgment for himself. But it doesn't have to be that way. And the third 
insanity of idolatry. So not, not only is it useless, not only does it bring God's judgment, but last of all, it, it rejects God's mercy that he offers to us. You see a, a hint of mercy here in this passage, right? The, the third officer in the story, he takes a, a very different approach. The first says, the king says, come down. The second says, man of God, the king says, come down quickly. The third falls on his knees, and he, he may still see the ashes of where the other two groups were, and has pity and spare as he calls out. And the captain recognizes that he and his men are in mortal danger and that he is standing before the Lord as a man, a man who represents God. And so he humbles himself. He, he asks for clemency and he receives mercy. Now the tragedy of the story is that mercy too, if you look at God's character in the rest of Scripture, would have been available to Ahaziah. We see this a little bit with Ahab. What, when, when Ahab was told that the Lord was going to come and cut off his family line, he repents, at least in some way. And the Lord says, I, I am going to hold for a generation. And often when God pronounces judgment, if someone asks for mercy, the Lord turns and is gracious to him. Ahab was just as bad as his son, maybe worse, because he really started this, this whole chain reaction of Baal worship. But where Ahab did humble himself, Ahaziah refused to. But what we see for the captain of the men who received their lives is a hint of the mercy to come in Jesus. Going back to John the Baptist, the Elijah that is to come talks about Jesus baptizing with fire. Baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire, his winnowing fork will be in his hand. Well, baptism is both a sign of inclusion into the covenant, but baptism is also a sign of, of judgment. You're, you, you pass through the danger, and you're either saved or you're destroyed. That's, that's what you see when you think, why, why does the Bible talk about Noah being baptized or the Israelites being baptized in, in, in the Red Sea? Well, because they pass through the waters of judgment, and they are saved, whereas the, the nations in Noah's uh, time or the Egyptians in Israel times, they are destroyed by those same waters of judgment. It's baptism is either your salvation or, or your judgment. And so baptism was a sign of judgment, partly because that was John's ministry. He was calling people to repent, and this is what will happen if you don't repent. He was pointing to that final day of the Lord where Jesus will come back and return, and that's absolutely true. But John, as one who had not seen the fullness of the covenant in Jesus, there was, there was a, a vantage point that he didn't see didn't have. Now it's true that Jesus talks more than anyone else uh, about hell and judgment. But he also talks about something else. He talks about his own baptism. He asks the disciples, can he be baptized with the baptism that, that I am baptized with? And, and what's he talking about there? Well, he is talking about how he wouldn't be saved. He would not pass through the ordeal unscathed. But he would take God's wrath on himself for those who would come to him and put their trust in him. He says in Mark 10, 45, For this, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's the beauty of the gospel, isn't it? That this, this holy and powerful God, absolutely justified in his righteousness and his judgment, has, has come down to offer mercy for those who don't deserve it by taking his wrath for them. So who do you turn to? When you're in trouble, 
the application is to accept his incredible mercy. And that's the, that's the offer of the gospel. If you haven't accepted Christ, you know, do, you, do you realize that it's there? To gain this mercy, you have to lose everything, which is why Ahaziah refused, even on his deathbed, he had this shred of independence that he wouldn't give up. He would rather be stubborn and die under judgment than to surrender to the true Lord. But God offers us. This gospel is such a lavish offer that your only hope is unconditional surrender. But it's real and it's good. And so, if you've never put your trust in Jesus, that's the offer of the gospel is like the third captain. Bow your knee and confess Jesus as the Lord. Put your trust in him. For Christians, we rejoice in his great mercy to you. Rejoice that you have been forgiven and are delivered. You know, I love talking about how you know we are adopted and how we're, we're united and we're, we're brought into God's family and we're, we're, we're given all these wonderful benefits. And that's actually kind of where I gravitate to and where I camp out and the, the things that just make my heart glow when, when I'm uh, worshiping the Lord. But it is also important to remember that we were people deserving eternal wrath who have been saved from God's justice. As that third captain was standing there amid the charred ruins of two other companies and realizing this could very easily be me. And realizing the depths of God's mercy to us in delivering us from the justice we deserve. And then when we do that, we can rejoice that the Lord is still working in us. Because I don't know about you, but there are still times when I am distracted, when I am wondering, when I am even stubborn and arrogant as someone who has the spirit that our Lord has died to, to disciple us and he's going to love us and he's still working in us. So this week, you can rejoice that Jesus, he has cut through your insanity. He's given you his mercy by giving himself for you so that you could follow him. Who will you turn to this week in your time of need? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you have snatched us from the fire like a burning stick. That you are so gentle, Lord, and it says that a bruised reed you will not break, a smoldering whip you will not stop. That's not out. But that was us, and we needed your deliverance. And we rejoice and who you are and what it means that you are a holy God who smiles on us with perfect acceptance. Would that idea cause us to wonder this week, to praise you, to go out and live for you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.